It's crowds that are just right up against a border and the border is being um, like the, the manifestation of the border is the police. Right. So you have you have a police line and then just, you know, like a crowd where you can't see the back of it. Right. And they are um, right after India's independence, um, the French Indian uh, administration basically banned rallies. <laughs> so they would hold them in India. Right. And then, yeah, people would attend and would be watching um, from right across. So like you can't stop that, actually. Right. Because, again, these borders are so, so micro. <laughs> right. Um, you just can't stop people from going up and standing there. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice. Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is a Phenomenalist podcast operating in parallel with a Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello everyone, today we're coming back with a new episode of the Phenomenalist podcast, uh, the, main, uh, the main show. Uh, and uh, my guest is uh, Jessica Namakal, who's uh, an associate professor uh, in, um, of the practice in international comparative studies, gender, sexuality and feminist studies and history at Duke University in the US. Uh, and she's the author of a book that we are going to talk a lot about today which is called Unsettling Utopia, The Making and Unmaking of French India, that was published uh, by Columbia University Press uh, this year. Uh, hi, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thank you so much for having accepted to, to talk, which is also great because it's a, it's a sort of the English uh, um, uh, rebuttal, not rebuttal, but the English response, let's say, to an episode we recently did in French uh, as part of the French uh, sh podcast show uh, Diaspora et Imaginaire des Luttes, Diaspora and the Imaginaries of the Struggle, um, about the, uh, the Tamil, uh, the Tamil um, uh, uh, diaspora in, fr in France. Also, we, we, had, we did do quite a few uh, episodes and, and, and writing about the other Tamil diaspora uh, in France, the Elam diaspora, but this time we're talking about the Tamil Nadu uh, diaspora, as well as um, more specifically the one coming from Puducherry, but I'm going way ahead of myself right now. <laughs> so let's let's uh, very strongly back up and uh, and go back to the very um, to the very formation of um, of those. I mean, of what in the book you call French India, uh, which I think is also allows us to. To do some things that we've been trying to do a bit, but that we'll try to do much, much more in the future, which is to also co highly complexify the history of the Indian subcontinent and uh, and also 
very much so how it was not just like, you know, the subcontinent was under British rule and then in 1947 uh, got rid of it. Like it's this much more complicated and complex uh, situations with like princess state and uh, the Portuguese and the French uh, being being there as well. So um, so here today we're going to talk about specifically French colonialism in the, on the subcontinent. Uh, through the those five uh, those five colonies uh, that uh, are not just Puducherry, which is usually the the one that most people know, uh, but also Karakal in also in Tamil Nadu, May in Kar- in Kerala, Yanam in Andhra Pradesh, and uh, Ch- Chandernagar in uh, all the way up to to the Bengal. Uh, so you could you Jessica could you perhaps yeah just give us a little bit of an outline of how there came to be those little pockets of French colonialism in uh, on the subcontinent? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so you, you said what they are. Um, and the important thing to know about them, of course, is that they are spread out. Um, and they're, you know, Pondicherry, Puducherry, um, they just changed their name a few years ago, <clears throat> is the largest of them. Um, and this is actually where a visual representation is really helpful. So I urge people, you can actually still see the um, the borders on a Google map today um, for for Puducherry, so you could go and look at that. But um, but uh, even within the the territories, there are these little they're enclaves, right? Um, so they're pretty small. Puducherry is the biggest, um, and they're really spread out from each other. So it seems very curious, right? And I think um, you know when. Uh, I went to, to write this book, part of the interesting part to me was that it's treated as sort of a historical accident or curiosity, and that's rarely the case, right? Especially when we're talking about colonialism. Um, so I sort of set out to, to find out why they were there um, and what, what purpose they served. So it's, you know, I, the origin story is maybe to be expected, right? The French were in India for the same reason that everybody else was in India as a trading company. Um, so the French East India Company arrived in 1667. Um, and the first thing they did was they established a, a factory uh, in Surat. Um, and that actually, the factories, I don't talk about them too much, but they there were actually these little factories um, throughout the subcontinent during this time period um, that were French-owned. And they were a little bit like a special economic zone. Uh, what we would call today, um, because they they were French governed, but it was just the factory. Um, so they, you know, you could have a French factory surrounded by British territory or princely state territory, <laughs> although most of their negotiations were with the British. So they started with the factories. It was um, part of a corporate uh, mercantile colonialism. Um, and then, uh, you know, they it didn't take them very long to want to establish a more formal presence. So by uh, 16, let's see, 1699, they established, or they put in the first French governor general in Pondicherry, uh, who was Francois Martin. Um, so, you know, it was by 1699, they had wanted to have more of a presence. Um, and an important thing to know about the placement of Pondicherry at the time um, was that it's very close to what is today called Chennai, but uh, Madras. And then Madras was becoming an important um uh, uh, spot for the British at the time. So they, you know, when, when this starts, they're sort of competing with each other um, in that space in, in the south of India. Um, so uh, they set it up there as a port. Um, 
they start to sort of use these territories um, as a space of uh, really proxy war for the global uh, imperial uh, fighting between the British and the French. <laughs> so you see this mostly, um, most, most clearly in the Seven Years' War, which happens between 1756 and 1763, and that's fought all over the world, right? Um, the trading and loss of territory in North America is often um, highlighted um, between France and England um, in the Seven Years' War. Uh, and, and the French lose Pondicherry um, in the Seven Years' War in 1760 to 61 to the British. Um, and it goes, it goes back and forth. Um, you know, there's uh, the British raise Pondicherry at some point. Um, they burn it down. Um, and, and even the, the French even get involved. Um, they're trying to make uh, affiliations with local leaders. So the, the most famous one is Tipu Sultan of Mysore, um, who wants to push back against British um, influence by sort of siding with the French. Um, so in this period, you get, um, you get sort of a, a moment where the French think that they might be able to to gain a lot of ground in, in the subcontinent. And that's over by the end of the revolutionary period. <laughs> so 1814, which is of course an important year in French history. Um, in 1814, the French, you know, it's gone back and forth. Um, there's some interesting work and this is not my period, so I don't do this, but there is some interesting work uh, by a scholar named Adrian Carton, C-A-R-T-O-N, um, about Pondicherry and the French Revolution. Um, so there are people that live uh, in Pondicherry who are writing um, letters to the revolutionary government, um, you know, trying to get rights and things like this. So this is important for contemporary Pondicherry because there is this feeling amongst people there that they have been involved with France for a very long time. Um, so so this dates back, you know, to pre to pre revolution. Um, so by 1814, um, France and England are making all kinds of treaties. Um, so in the Treaty of Paris um, in 1814, the, um, uh, all of the original territories are restored to France. Um, so that is uh, the ones that you mentioned, Chandanagar, Mahé, Caracal, uh, Puducherry, um, and Yanam. They're all restored um, with the caveat that they can have no military presence. So from 18, um, it's, it's put into place in 1816. Um, they can't have a military, they can have a police force, and those become quite important um, uh, uh, for the liberation movement. So, the, so those five territories um, become permanent in 1816. And, you know, as I was doing research, you see a lot of discussion uh, back and forth between French, the French and the uh, British diplomats who are in Pondicherry about sort of trading um, some of the land for, you know, uh, spaces in Morocco, um, spaces um, in Indochina. So there's the, you know, the, 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 the British really see this as a giant headache, mostly. They don't think of it as any sort of uh, military threats. They don't really see it as a threat to their economic situation, although there is some concerns about smuggling. But as I talk about in the book, I mostly read this as a thin, thinly veiled sort of concern about um, the movement of revolutionary actors. Um, so, uh, so there is a lot of discussion about uh, what's going on there. And, and what really happens in the 19th century for the French um, is that it's, it's important to have a presence in India because India is such an important cultural space. Um, 
in in you know in a lot of different fields but in the french imagination so and kate marsh is the scholar who has worked um on that question um quite well um so uh you know there's there's sort of this feeling uh amongst french imperialists that what had happened in india was a bit of a failure for the empire <laughs> um but that to keep the presence was really important um because it was it was a space where they could say um look at look at how we are um, so much more civilized than the British colonizers, how we treat our subjects so much better. We offer them citizenship. Um, you know, we build these buildings, we have educational systems. Um, so it becomes really important there. Um, so that's what the French are doing there. That is why they stay. And just to give a sense of timeline, and I um, hope I'm not stepping on your questions here, um, but it is, it is, you know, as you said, we think India becomes independent in 1947. And it's not until um, Algeria is lost <laughs> um, that, they, that uh, the French territories are officially let go. So France agrees in 1954, after the loss of Dien Bien Phu um, in Indochina, they agree to leave, um, and then they don't ratify it until the Avian Accords in 1962. Um, so the timeline is, is quite long, um, and so most of the book then takes place um, around those questions of, of what will happen to French India. Yeah, thank you. And we're, we're, we're going to go back to this uh, to this um, later part uh, later in the conversation. Um, something something that uh, I found fascinating in your book and that you found fascinating researching clearly when when one uh, reads uh, reads uh, your word uh, is the question of borders uh, for the obvious the very obvious reason that you go from 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 british colonialism to french colonialism in just like a few uh, a few meters essentially or i mean well, really from two sides of the line as you, as even the the cover of the book is trying to show but but those borders are not even like some sort of like i don't know like a big round <laughs> a big round in the, in a sea of uh, in a sea of british colonialism they're they're in, incredibly intricate as well and And just like there is an archipelago of, of, of French colony on the subcontinent, there is also like uh, a, an island of this archipelago, such as Puducherry, has is in itself an incredibly intricate archipelago of, of territories as well, creating, therefore, some very, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, awkward uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, situations where, uh, where the two... Uh, colonial legislation are sort of uh, almost overlapping so perhaps you can you can tell us about that uh, and and quite interest and sometimes it is sometimes it is very mundane and sometimes it is very militarized and and I, I say sometimes and I I guess some place as well um, and uh, but quite interestingly also that that very much allowed for be prior to 1947, It allowed for uh, uh, the the Indian uh, movement for liberation to to organize also within the French parts, and then the other way around is true as well. Like after forty seven, on the uh, on the other side of this of those very tenuous uh, lines, uh, uh, there will be some uh, organizing against French colonialism from uh, independent India. Can you 
Can you can you tell us? Can you share with us a little bit this fascination you had for those borders? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, that it stems from um, you know you just see a map of them and you think why. <laughs> Right. This is just totally illogical. And I mean, just in, even in terms, I mean, of course, colonial borders are not logical. Um, and we know that. I mean, from the partition of India, we know that it's not it's not logical. But, you know, it's it, it seems just like a, a basically a nightmare to administer. Right. Um, I mean, there really are. And this is I I, I can send a, a map to put up with show notes or, or whatever. But it's, it's really important to see this map because they are. Um, really just sp um, split in all kinds of sort of strange ways, right? Um, from what the cover shows down the middle of a village to, um, um, you know, the, it, the other thing to say about it, especially for Puducherry, and the other ones are not as fractured. Puducherry is the one that is the most fractured, and it's, again, the biggest area. Um, but even for, uh, oh, I was going to say, but even within Puducherry, and this starts quite early in the, Um, 17th, uh, 18th century, that Puducherry itself is fractured within the French territory because it's segregated by by race. I mean, there's a color line in Pondicherry, right, which is actually kind of unbelievable in some senses. So there is what was called a Ville Blanche and then a Ville Noir. Um, and now they've changed the name. So now it says Heritage Town on it, so, um, on the white town. So take take that for what it is. Um, but there's all kinds of different um, fracturing going on. And, you know, and at the, at the time, it was not a, it's not a very populous place. You know, now there's a million people, which is, you know, smallish for an Indian city. But that, that is a significant am amount of people, right? Um, and at the time, it was much smaller than that. But, you know, it was, it was a fishing town, right? It was a, you know, it became this port city, Um So, you know, it wasn't like there were these masses of people that were being split up. So it seems, you know, like particularly awkward and random, as, as you said. Um, and, and what is interesting to me, you know, they, they were, uh, you know, this is just a negotiation between two colonial powers or two imperial states, right? Like, we're going to break up this land. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, you know, it's not natural borders. It's not because there's a river there. It's not because there's a hill over there. It's... um. It's it's totally constructed, um, but uh, you know, as as you as you noted, they become, you know, I, I tried to show in the book that for some people, they become carceral, right? They become uh, borders that are meant to surveil them. They're there. To, they're there to provide a way for them to be confined. But for other people, you know, they become a way for them to, um, they use them as a tool, right? And this is in the liberation struggle. So, you know, one of the major figures, Sri Aurobindo, he goes to Pondicherry. He's, he's a major figure in the anti-colonial movement, the British anti-colonial movement. Um, and he's one that is committed to um, a type of liberation that invokes violence when necessary. So he's wanted in a bombing case. Um, and he, you know, he, he takes that opportunity to, to be in exile without leaving India, right? And he's actually, he's Bengali, he's able to do that by leaving through Chandranagar, right? So he can leave through that port and go down to Pondicherry. Um, and then he stays the rest, the rest of his life. And, you know, we could talk about all the kinds of reasons that he becomes famous, but um, he is surveilled and he's surveilled. The British want the French to surveil him, right? They're asking... 
the French police to do it. They're like telling the British, no, like this is our, this is our um, jurisdiction. You can't come in here. But then they have their own surveillance going on, you know, and they're also surveilling you know, the, the French police in Paris are surveilling. There's a file in the National Archive in Paris called Hindus, Hindus in Paris. <laughs> you know, and it's um, it's all of the police records of them surveilling them. So they are definitely doing that, but they're also using the opportunity to say, like, um, you know, these people have their sort of political freedom within here. So that that border becomes like a safe, a, a, a place of safety, even though there is surveillance going on. Um, but also, you know, the other thing about the borders is what comes out of this era globally, but what we see on a micro level here is the era of identity documents, right, and of passports. So you get that in a very um, sort of an early time period because of these borders where all of a sudden people who, you know, there were um, British and French factories in Puducherry, so you had a lot of workers um, who needed to, like, cross, you know, uh, basically an international border to get to their job, right, every day, which is something we, you know, see a lot more of today um but they you know they had to have these identity cards and you know just think about this you're you know in a small village in the south of india and your factory is as you said like a few meters away and then you need to get an identity card and there's poll taxes and all these things are are happening so you 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 get this sort of push to for people to need to identify with a um with what's something of a national identity right and of course, for British in British India, nobody was a citizen. In French India, you could be a citizen. Not everybody was, but but many families had applied for and been granted French citizenship. So there's some very like clear differences to people in what it meant to live on either side of that border. Um, the other thing I'll say about the borders right now, I guess, is that this they're part of an international um, movement to militarize borders, right? Or to create these borders. And the example um, I found that was really fascinating um, is that of the police officer, Charles Tagart, um, who was a member of the Calcutta police um, and goes to work in Transjordan, um, right? And is a part of building these fences that, you know, when you look at a map of Gaza today, and you look at this map of Pondicherry, you see similarities, right? And yeah. it's, it's not, a, it's, that's, they were the same people. It was the same people, right? So it's not a mistake. They're both part of these imperial um, projects of border making. Um, and Tegard is the one that said we need to put in wire fences, right? And then he, he actually references it when he puts up the, um, the fences, what's known as Tegard's line in Transjordan. Mm. Um, so they got they're, forts they're, as well. The the Mukata the Mukata in Ramallah was was a, a Tegard fort. Was a Tegard fort, right? And this Tegard is the one. Tegard is um, obsessed with the British anti-British um, uh, figures hiding out in Chandernagar. Like he is obsessed with. He thinks every house in Chandernagar is harboring terrorists. Right. He calls it like a hotbed of anarchism that they weren't actually anarchists, but um, that's the We're word. Just he uses. Yes, exa- exactly. Um, but, you know, so so the, the egg, so sort of the space of exile becomes an obsession um, of, of the British police forces in these places quite a bit. So you see um, these borders get um, become very important. You know, the other way I try to show that people sub- use them as a, a, a sort of tool of subversion is the passport itself. 
Um, so, you know, uh, Subaya, who's a person I talk about, who was um, the founder of the French India Communist Party, he is just known for, like, um, flipping his identity all the time, right? Like, it didn't matter to him. He's just trying to get somewhere. And the British and the French, you have all of these consular documents where they're saying, like, he's yours, he's yours, he doesn't belong to us. But this is, you know, not um, someone who's not a French Indian, M.N. Roy, the founder of the Indian Communist Party and the Mexican Communist Party. He would used to tell people he was French Indian um, and say he was from Chandranagar um, all the time when he was going through border patrols and things like this. So they, you know, they were actually like quite malleable in, in a sense because nobody really, you know, I have this great quote in there from um, the, the British consular who's just like, nobody actually knows what identity they are and it's basically impossible to figure it out right um so you know what what, last thing i know i keep saying last thing but that cover on the um the picture on the cover is a police officer standing um this i think the picture is 1953 um standing in the middle of a village where you have a rock border just a line of rocks and that picture is from a murder investigation where they were trying to figure so the, the you know the the more the greater document I have there is all of these police pictures and they're like you know the blood splatter from the murder was sort of on both sides of the line, so they're really trying to figure out who needs to take responsibility for this murder case right while everyone just kind of watches them so you know it, it it points to the just absolute absurdity of these borders but I think you could extrapolate to talk about you know the greater absurdity of borders. <laughs> Here. Yeah, I think we're we're right in the middle of uh, China, Mieville, uh, uh, the city and the city, which is really this overlapping two cities that don't see each other and, and all that. Um, perhaps just one last thing on the borders is is, is the sort of the, the flipping, of course, post uh, post forty seven. I mean, there there's a description where you that you that you write where like basically you have crowds coming to listen to anti-colonial uh, speeches but the, the speaker is on the other side of the line so that he doesn't get arrested by by the french authorities yeah and i have you know i i actually have all these great pictures of that but i just didn't get permissions because they're from mm-hmm. indian newspapers um to print them in the book and and it, actually the pictures are quite important and quite striking because you have visual evidence of the crowds and it's crowds that are just right up against a border and the border is being um like the the manifestation of the border is the police right so you have you have a police line and then just you know like a crowd where you can't see the back of it right and they are um right after india's independence um the french Indian uh, administration basically banned rallies, right? You couldn't have them. So they would hold them in India, right? And then, yeah, people would attend and would be watching um, from right across. So, like, you can't stop that, actually, right? Because, again, these borders are so um, so micro, right? Um, you just can't stop people from going up and standing there. Um, so this was actually, a, you know, this was a, a political happening it was the growth of a movement right you know what what if the french authorities hadn't passed that law i don't know right um can't can't speculate on that but it certainly like gave the movement momentum to have these like crowds of people standing on these borders that weren't always so visible right it's sort of another way that the border becomes visible um is by enacting these laws where you can't do one thing you know but you can yell 
I mean, I think it says also about something you point out in the book, which is also the sort of the diplomacy that was going on between the new the newly created state of India and 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 France, because, you know, colonialism does not need rules. Like so, uh, we have we have uh, centuries of of uh, of colonial powers breaking the very rules they themselves and uh, themselves wrote. So so. I think the fact that in that case the rules were sort of like uh, respected and therefore played with by the the anti-colonial movement is also has something to do as well with the way France wanted to to dialogue with uh, with the Indian state, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about two particular dates, um, or two particular moments, because. All, all those colonies we're talking about there, even though there was the Ville Blanche, as you pointed out, they're not settler colonies. They are, they are uh, colonies of, and they're not even extractivist colonies. They're more like labor and, and cultural and, and just yeah. like yeah. Uh, prestige, I suppose, colonies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but this, this, of course, this, of course, involves uh, to have... Uh, to have part of the colonized population that are that are very much uh, uh, doing the work that maybe settlers would be doing if if it was a settler colonies, and so there is a, there is um, some very particular uh, laws that are being enacted uh, when it comes to citizenship, as you already said, but also the the name of people. So could you could you perhaps tell us about uh, the 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 law of renunciation, and about about citizens. Uh, about citizenship, um, um, I, I'm just realizing that I, I'm going ahead of myself right now, but it's okay because renunciation is very much in the sort of chronological moment we, we were in right now. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit how, yeah, France is really trying to uh, integrate, uh, to integrate uh, in particular the Puducherry uh, French Indians uh, much more than in most other colonies yeah i mean part of it is scale i think and the the um the decree relative to the personal status um is the official name translated um it happens in 1881 um and um what happens in french india is you know the people that choose this are people who um are not uh, high in the local hierarchy, right? So wh what that translates to is low caste people. And you get a lot of um, conversion to Catholicism that comes along with that. Um, but you get, you get quite a significant portion of Muslims also um, re renouncing and taking on French citizenship. And, I, you know, it's not, um, I, you know, I say this and, and the, the numbers show this, right? The, num the, the demographics show that it's you know, high caste Indians don't want it, right? Because they don't want to, they don't want to jeopardize their place in, in the hierarchy. And they, you know, they're quite angry a lot of the times about um, the idea of giving other, like these other groups, any sort of equal, like idea of equal status. So they find that French idea quite repugnant. <laughs> Right. Um, they are not interested in that at all. And what you see happen very quickly um, is, you know, in the Catholic Church, you have a uh, like an outcast section. Right. So people are still being segregated. Um, but that being said, and, you know, that's actually part of this is the utopia of the title is that for 
people that are um, have experienced great caste oppression and have been, you know, kept out of um, any kind of mo- social or economic mobility. Um, it, it the promise of what French citizenship offered was really important. And still is, actually. I mean, today it's more of a mobility issue, right? People want to go to the EU and um, get degrees and things like this, which totally makes sense. Um, but but it really, you know, there, the system people lived in, there was just no alternative, right? Um, so it, it was really compelling and people really did, um, really, it wasn't cynical. It wasn't just to get out of the system. They really embraced learning French, learning French history, going to the convent schools, um, like participating in, in what they saw as a French civil life, writing, uh, like creating newspapers, right, um, that were in French and Tamil, um, and, and some of the other regional languages too. So people really embraced it. They were proud of it. Um, so the renunciation becomes really important there. It's a different question today, and I think we'll probably get there. Um, so I'll, you know, but on, in the early days... Um, that that promise of equality is actually quite quite important to them, and one that is actually from the anti-colonial British movement is actually reinforced a lot because whenever the big names for the anti-colonial British movement come, they sort of say you have it really good here in French India because you have the French and they have equality and liberty and, and fraternity, and so you actually have this idea of equality. Now, of course, you know we have lots of ways to show that that isn't true. Um, but uh, but that was really important to them. You know, the, the other uh, thing about, you know, what kind of colonies are there? I mean, I think cultural is really important. They, they were, you know, France doesn't go to Indochina until this period, right? This is the period of um, colonization in Indochina. And that relationship is actually pretty important. Like having a port in South India is actually pretty important to um, what they're able to do in settling in, in Indochina. And there's quite a bit of um, of people from Puducherry who go, who migrate to Indochina um, and become sort of a, a merchant class there. Um, they run the banks. Um, so there is this relationship there that, that is important to them. I forgot the other part of the question. Um. Well, it was it was a, it was about the the names as well the the family names that are uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. changing because where I I use the word integration on purpose because that's very much how the the French the French uh, see I mean called what they are doing but it's quite interesting how this whole universalist uh, uh, sort of agenda created by the French Revolution and all that and you know what what uh, on uh, with. Today's uh, today's vocabulary that you you yourself use in the book, uh, we would call like a colorblind um, a, co- a colorblind society. But it's quite it's quite interesting how um, you can be indeed Tamil, uh, dark skinned, uh, and French, but you cannot have a Tamil name. Like you need you need to have a yeah. French name, and so so it's uh, so there there's something there that is quite quite interesting in how. Of course, as I think all listeners to this particular show will will already know, uh, universalism is just another word for whiteness. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the the conversion, um, the name conversion comes with the religious conversion a lot of the time. And this actually mirrors what's going on in in Anglo-Indian communities sometimes, although you don't get the 
um, Anglo Indian communities are a mixed, um, I guess, mixed race for lack of a better word, um, communities. And we, you know, you have the Creole um, community in Pondicherry, so that certainly exists. But the name, the name conversion, is not indicative of that. You're right; like it happens with just Tamil names. Um, sometimes it's you know people taking on the names of their mentors or not their mentors, their um, patrons is the word, right? Um, but the, but the you know, and I think you were getting towards um, to this a little with it's not a settler colony. It really isn't. Like they actually couldn't get that many French people to go there, right? Um, they, they really couldn't. So they actually really depended on the Creole community to some extent to play that role of the European. Something we really ought to talk about, but perhaps another time or or in a, in another episodes, I suppose, and and that's something that I'm trying to do with the with the French podcast that was I was talking about earlier, is also how um, the French col French colonial presence on the subcontinent also led to a sort of alternative system to the transatlantic slave trade, which is which was called engagisme, which led uh, France to deport. Uh, I mean deport with like more or less with their will but it's it's complicated and people were very much uh, uh, hoaxed into getting on getting on on, on ships uh, and uh, and so a certain amount of, of Chinese people but also Indians and when we say Indians we women's Tamil mostly uh, towards the other quote-unquote old colonies in the Caribbean and in the Indian Ocean I mean uh, namely Iranian and uh, and Mauritius Um, so I think that's that might be. I, I know that it's not exactly. It's not. It's not really in the book. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ask you about about this. But I. I think I. I just wanted to put it out there so that. Uh, uh, so that it, it. It becomes somehow part of this history as well. But so if we if we continue moving on uh, through time and uh, reaching uh, uh, reaching a period that we already started to talk about, which is from from 47 or 46 i mean 46 47 is a very very key moment because 46 is the sort of recalibration of french colonialism to not lose everything at once essentially and 47 of course is uh, is a victory of the indian liberation movement over uh, british colonialism and the independence of uh, of uh, unfortunately not one but two new states Um, can you tell us a little bit about this, those years that followed and, uh, and the organizing against French colonialism? Also, probably something that I have trouble always sort of uh, uh, giving accounts to, like the sort of complexity also like of thinking that not everyone in Puducherry wants to get rid of French colonialism. Like it's, it's, not, uh, it's not Algeria. So would, would you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you put that really well. That's... Um... That's sort of where the story um, gets really complicated, right? Because, you know, it, it, this, this fits into really well into the narrative I was just um, sharing, which is that people have a really strong attachment to their French identity. Not everyone, but, you know, a significant number of people. And the French know that and they talk about it a lot, right? So again, um, this is a s series of territories that are not economically... Um, strategically that important um, for the empire, but they have, you know, a pretty good, they, they people know about them um, and it's, they're culturally important. And also it's a good place for them to show why people want to be members of the emerging French union. 
right? Because this is the idea that the new government um, is trying to push, right? That people should be in the union, um, much like the British Commonwealth. Um, that that's the way to keep the empire because empires are sort of going by the wayside. So how do we keep everything? Um, and, and it is a good place to do that because people, um, you know, again, to a certain extent, it's because of this, um, the, the placement in the South, right? And even, you know, Chandanagar is the, is the one territory that votes to join the Indian Union. They do that in 1949. Um, but even for them, you know, they're not based in uh, what is becoming the center of the post independence Indian government. And for people in South India, you know, the idea of belonging to a united India that is based in Delhi is, is you know, I guess problematic to this very day. Um, to, you know, there's a Tamil liberation movement. There's all kinds of annexation movements. Um, the anti-caste politics, the anti-Brahmin movement um, in, in Tamil Nadu is a really important movement that isn't reflected in the North. Right, so there's um, the language politics issue becomes really big in the 1960s, but is already an issue, right, where the leaders are either speaking English or they're speaking Hindi for the most part. Um, so these are all issues for people in the South, and that translates to Puducherry, right? And it, it, what it does is it, it, like, adds another degree of separation, basically, right? You know, where, where if you're like, do we want to be ruled by India or do we want to be ruled by France? Well, for people that, you know, are, have experienced caste oppression or for people that, you know, have, see the Indian government as being um, kind of just as foreign to them as the British government had been, except, you know, they feel like they have, they've gotten more attention from the French government, right? And France really sells this to them a lot. Uh, that we care about you, you know, we we give you citizenship, we built an Alliance Francaise in Puducherry, you know, we do, we do all of these things for you. Um, so, you know, why not be in the French Union? So it, it's actually not that hard of a uh, an idea to sell, right? Um, and I, I think, again, not even cynically, um, you know, people often knew what this meant. But again, it, it's a little bit of a toss up. Like, what does it mean to be Indian? You know, for them, you know, the being Tamil is part of their lives, but so is being French, right? So um, you do get, you know, and I show in the book all these figures that really kind of like keep flipping sides, right? Um, because there's, it's, there's no, the movements are not really French Indian, right? It's, that's not their option. There's not going to be a French India. So the question is like, who will recognize what French India is better, France or India? Like in what, in, in what future um, will we be able to express our identities um, as we see them? And, uh, you know, that there's a lot of disagreement there. There's a lot of debate about that. So in 19, you know, as, the, as Indian independence becomes imminent, there are certainly students, you know, student groups, and mostly are the ones that are really just anti-colonial. And this does have to do with solidarity with the rest of the rest of the empire. You know, so you do get, um, you know, people looking at Madagascar and you do get people looking towards Indochina. Like you do get people looking at Algeria um, and, and thinking about solidarity. And you see that in, in movements, particularly student-led movements. Um, but, you know, the, the people are thinking about what the future is going to look like. 
Um, and that, as the longer it drags on, the more people are thinking about that future, right? Because, of course, there's a flashpoint in 47 where it's like, oh, everybody's being liberated. Let's be liberated, right? But then you have other people sort of saying, well, what does that mean, right? What is that actually going to look like for us? Because if we're just swallowed by India, and this, and that's the that's the argument the French brought them, <laughs> Right. Not that people couldn't have come up with it. That's what you had the bureaucrats saying is like, go and tell them they're going to be lost in a sea of India where right now they're very unique. Right. Um, so. Yeah. And so going back to this idea of, of citizenship, obviously it becomes uh, it becomes even more uh, prominent as as uh, as as uh, Puducherry and the other uh, and the other colonies are about to to integrate uh, the Indian Union um, and and I don't know it's hard not it's hard not to read uh, uh, I mean essentially what you explain is that is that both friends the French state and the Indian state are giving people six months to decide whether they want to be French or Indian uh, India not granting like double uh, dual citizenship uh, still still today like you have to renunciate your Indian citizenship if you if you become another uh, of another nationality, um, but it's hard really not to not to see similarities in what we are seeing right now with regards to Kanaki because um, uh, you have basically a state that says. Uh, a colonial state that says, uh, uh, I, I don't know if it translates in English, but in, in French we say, après moi le déluge, like uh, after me the tempest, like meaning like once I'm gone, then yeah. you're you're on your own. Yeah. And and also uh, and also like if you don't want if you don't want us, then well we're we're out and we're slamming the door kind of thing. Like, and so and and so you have those ridiculously uninformed. Uh, six months, right, where people have to have to decide. Uh, I have to be honest. I forgot whether it is uh, in 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 uh, in fifty four or actually in sixty two. It's in sixty two. Okay, so we'll, so perhaps then I'll integrate my other question with this one, so that you can tell us all this last eight years of uh, of uh, French presence in in Puducherry, which is the amazing concomitance of uh, of. Uh, this process with the Algerian Revolution, I mean, the end of it, it's 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 big. It's as you already explained. It's the fact that France basically said, "Uh, yeah, wait, we agreed that you guys will be independent, but we we need to finish with those Algerians guys, and yeah. uh, and then we'll 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 be we'll be right with you." <laughs> but uh, but quite amazingly, what something I encountered in your book is the fact that on November first, nineteen fifty four, there is like an official ceremony of. Uh, transmission of power which of course is not the case because then you need to wait for eight more years but uh, november 1st uh, 1954 being like the first day of the french as uh, the french revolution i always do that the algerian revolution that's how much i i i think of the algerian revolution as as also something that i'm part of <laughs> um uh, uh so i don't know i mean it's it's also me being being a bit ridiculous with historical coincidences but but i i just I, i'm just fascinated when this kind of things happen just imagining something happening at the same time than another like that of, of such prom of such prominence 
So could, could you tell us about those eight last years and indeed this, this sort of final six months of, of citizenship yeah. dilemma? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole, you know, the real, um, the real movement that happens is in 1954, right? And it's, yeah. it is, I mean, it's not, it, it happens a little bit suddenly. It has obviously been building up and a large part of the book is me talking about all of the sort of violence that's happening on the borders um, that's, that's papered over and, and things like this. Um, but yeah, it, it really, it takes this one, and this is a name change issue, right? Because it takes this one um, figure to change his mind that really like changes the tide. And this is uh, E.G. Goubert. Um, who is a French senator, right, or from, from Pondicherry. Um, and he is one of the Creoles that I talk about. So he has one, he has an Indian mother and a, and a French father. Um, and it takes him sort of changing his mind and, and his name at the same time, where um, Edward, you know, Edouard Goubert becomes E.G. Palai. Right. So he um, and he starts wearing a Nehru cap, um, you know, and he just changes his sort of whole persona. Um, and that sort of changes the tide of, of public opinion where it's like, OK, well, I mean, it, it's not him. And actually, he's quite a controversial figure um, in Puducherry today. But um, but it, it's a symbol of people sort of changing their minds and where they fall. Like, it just doesn't seem tenable anymore. And some of that is because India had been cutting, like, it was basically, embar- they were embargoing, embargoing things into Pondicherry. So, you know, there were periods where, you know, the post wasn't working. There's no way these territories could survive in independent India without the cooperation of India. Right? Like, India could choose to cut them off at any point. There's just no chance. And it's fascinating because... Goa, which is under Portuguese occupation, of course, uh, Portugal is a fascist or a dictatorship, you know, at the time. So India is not negotiating with Portugal. They go in with the military and get rid of everyone. And they're like, they're not going to do that in French India. They're not going to do it. So it really is this like India is trying to create um, a good post-colonial relationship with France. They want that. Um, like the people in French India be damned, basically, right? Um, it's about that relationship. So what what happens is, it's actually the 18th of October is when um, this vote happens um, in Pondicherry. And then it, it's made official on November 1st, um, which today is referred to as uh, Pondicherry Liberation Day. So there's um, like these, like they just had a celebration, you know, last week or whenever it was. But that's a really, it's actually, it's, a, it's an unofficial liberation day. Um, and the, um, it's in Pondage, like the state recognizes Independence Day as August 15th, 1962, I think. So you get, um, people say this is really it. This is the moment of liberation. And that's actually, that timeline is really important um, because the ratification doesn't, it, it is amazing. The ratification doesn't happen until the Avian Accords. And that's when the citizenship clause kicks in. Right. Um, but people in Puducherry today really see their re- uh, liberation as happening in 1954. That's just a huge period of time. Right. But um, but there is, you know, the the thing that really happens after 1954 is, you know, the militarization ceases, basically. So all of these um, all of these constrictive um, regimes that have put into place cease to exist. So people are like, they're much more free to move around. 
Um, they are confused, like they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know about the citizenship issue. So there's a lot of discussion about that. But it sort of becomes more about local politics during that time. It starts to be like people and, and uh, the Scoobear E.G. Polite becomes um, a very prominent local position, uh, politician, right? You get the formation of new political parties. Um, so the sort of anti-colonial uh, movement kind of ends in 1954. Um, you know, the question of Algeria and Indochina are so important here. Um, and they're really important on a, on a national level because Nehru um, wants to be in solidarity with Algeria. So he actually finds himself part of the, you know, it's it's not, I don't think it's, you know, complete historical coincidence. So you don't have to worry about that. Um, that these dates line up, right? Because it really is being decided on the national scale. And Nehru is trying to negotiate um, both being in solidarity with Indochina and and Algeria, especially, you know, as he's forming the non-aligned movement, as he goes to Bandung, right? Um, all of these uh, movements where he's meeting with these people, he's in solidarity with them, yet he's trying to create a, a, a post-colonial relationship with a strong European state that's not England, right? Like they need another partner. <laughs> um, so that is like one of the way, reasons France is so important. So a lot of the lag has to do with the negotiation of those situations where, you know, you want to publicly be for the independence and the sovereignty of Algeria and Indochina, but also you're trying to create a good relationship with France. Um, so a lot of, you know, these people's lives then get tied up in these, these global negotiations, I think. Um, yeah. And then the citizenship, you know, that happens in 1962. It's not well advertised. Right. I mean, I, people today have a lot of questions about whether their families would have gone and declared their French citizenship if they had known about it. You know, it's six months. It's kind of a long time, actually. You know, it's not like you, it's not like one week where it's like you have one week to get your stuff together. So like they could have gone out and told people it's not that big of a place. But, you know, so it's about five uh, percent of the population um, declares uh, French citizenship, you know, a good number of those people had been, had fought in the wars. Um, so they were getting French military pensions. Um, some of them, you know, thus had relationships to France because they had fought, you know, in Europe. Um, so there was more mobility then, right? Early on, nobody was going to, nobody went to France, right? I mean, you had to be a very prominent person to, to go. Um, by, but at this point, because of the war, because of the um, it's easier to, to just travel. More people are going. Um, this is, of course, like classed and um, you have to have the means to do it. And so, you know, you have people of low caste and things who are soldiers um, who have mobility. So there's some changes in that um, with the citizenship issue. But you get you then, you know, and it starts before 62. You get people who are moving to, to Paris and starting these sort of French Indian organizations and um and things like this um so you know it, it's it's interesting the the french indian citizen population it becomes bigger in france than it does in Puducherry um after 62 but there's always been like a, a good core of tamil people who have french citizenship that remain in, in Puducherry today Chana, the people of chananagar were not part of that agreement 
So they did not have the opportunity to do that. So after 1949, it's the other four territories. So they're not included in the 62 citizenship agreement. It's important. Well, just as a last question, I, I might push you a little bit uh, on what you just described and, and try to take us to today, essentially. And, yeah. you know, we, we've said, uh, we've said uh, how, uh, of course, how absurd uh, colonial borders are. We can also see, probably say how citizenship also is quite absurd in many ways and, uh, and talk about this very, like this, this, this what, what we may in a very extreme uh, position called uh, an internal diaspora uh, of, of, of French Indians who don't have the Indian citizenship but who have never lived anywhere else than in India. Uh, and we have to live with like a, a permanent uh, permanent resident card uh, or on the on the other hand like uh, as I said uh, at the very beginning and as uh, Priya Ange and Anita Kitri were, were telling us about in the in the French uh, in the French part of this uh, uh, in the French episode that I was I was describing how um, uh, uh, you also have those uh, French Tamil uh, who like immigrate to France and arrive in France and say, well, I am French. And of course, uh, France being still a white supremacist country, they, there is like a, a fundamental disconnect with, with, the, with the idea that someone could arrive from India and, and be already French. So could you tell us a little bit about this? Um, yeah, this is very absurd to just to reuse this this word uh but i mean uh, yeah uh, this absurd relationship to citizenship and the situation it creates both in in india and and elsewhere in the world and in particular in france yeah absolutely um yeah everything you just described um is exactly what i found to be true as well and you know I'm, I'll, i'll propose something here which is well two things one is that part of what um really um affects French Indians going to France is that India has such a strong cultural identity, right? Um, you know, some of that is post-independence, but even pre just the, you know, in, and this happens in France, in the French Academy um, quite early, right? Is an, uh, an obsession with, you know, Orientalist renderings of what India is in Sanskrit, um, in, you know, Eastern religions, all of these things that, you know, um, you know, bourgeois French society is kind of obsessed with, right? And so to show up um, in France and say, like, I'm, no, I'm French, and you look Indian to people, like, they're just not interested, right? It's like, no, you're Indian, that's so great. Like, tell us about, um, you know, tell us about Gandhi, and then tell us about, you know, um, all the Hindu epics and like they want to know because they see you as this cultural object. Right. I mean, I actually I have an article um, that's about something different, but is about a, a woman named um, oh, Indira Sarkar, um, who was uh, the daughter of uh, a very prominent uh, Hindu sociologist, Bengali sociologist named Benoit Sarkar, um, who married a, an Austrian woman named Ida. And Indira um goes to college, she goes to university in Paris um, in the late 1940s, and she she wants to study French culture and language. And she writes these letters back that are, are published in the Calcutta Review. And she, she writes them and she's just like, nobody here will let me study French things, right? She wasn't French Indian, but she, you know, she has this, 
European identity, whatever. But she's, you know, she writes very explicitly, like, every other Indian, like, student I know, we're all pushed into studying Indian things. Like, we see this in the academy all the, all the time today, right? It's like, if you are white, you are neutral, you get to study whatever you want. So there's a real barrier to being able to discuss, um, like, your own association to Frenchie, because it just seems like people just don't see it. And they're like, the Indian part overpowers whatever sort of association um, that, that people have. So that's, of course, very different to Algerians, right? Um, this is, you know, so there's, there's complications there, I think. But there's also, like, a real pride, and I don't... Um, you know, I don't work with the community today. So um, some of this is anecdotal, but you know, there's really in the 1950s and 1960s, there's such a pride in being French, right? And again, it's, it's the, what the governments had been telling them. It's what the colonial administrations had been telling them. Like you are part of this great French project, right? I mean, you have been for generations um, and you know, all of, all of this can be yours. And then, of course, it's not. Right. So, um, you know, I think what you see then is um, is certain isolation of the group amongst themselves um, when they're in France. Not always. And, you know, I think the generational thing is probably quite different. But um, and and this is, you know, Priya's work does a little bit of this. But like thinking about, you know, how people really um, look, people in Pondicherry want to marry French Indians that have gone to France. And so, I mean, I don't you can't blame anyone for this, right? We know one passport is better than the other in terms of being able to make money and get places and do things and get educations and things. Um, so it's, it's really a, a, a product of that. So yeah, citizenship is absurd. It's also like incredibly um, consequential and material, right? So it's, um, you know, of course you're going to try to, you know, invoke this colonial, these colonial laws and relationships in order to be able to move throughout the world, right? Um, so, you know, it's, I think now it's less of this sort of sense of pride and more of it like, how do I move? How do I go somewhere? What, what do I get to do to do this? I mean, it's such a small fraction of people too that have access to this, but. Great, well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, there's one big aspect of the book we haven't talked about, which very much refers to to the to the to, to even the title of the book Unsettling Utopia, which is uh, which is Oroville. Uh, but I guess this just gives uh, another reason for people to to read the book and not feeling at all like we've covered uh, the whole thing very very far from it. So yeah, I hope I hope that uh, many people will after after listening to this. Th- thank you again very much, Jessica. Thank, thank you so much.